Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, I always say we have a timely podcast guest. Um, I think this also is a very timely guest, (laughs) considering the current climate we find ourselves in. Yeah, we really try to make a lot of our episodes be kind of timeless in a way, something that you could pick up down the road and listen to it. And I, I think this one would be interesting down the road, but I think with everything that's going on in the world right now, with the, we're sitting here in March of 2022, we're coming through hopefully to the end of COVID. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and that's had a lot of impacts on the markets, among other things. Yeah, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and these farmers are really struggling with you know how to move forward, how to maintain a profitable operation given all of the, the uncertainty and you know the potential for black swan events such as war. So today's guest was Dr. Paul Mitchell from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell is an economist in agriculture, and so he really is uniquely qualified to speak to a lot of these concerns that farmers have. How can they maintain profitability in such an environment where, where everything's changing and input costs are going through the roof? And I think he really offers some good, timely advice for growers that I, th- I think they'll benefit from. Yeah. And I thought this podcast interview was so great. You know, I think it'd be fun to have Dr. Mitchell on again after the growing season just to see how things turn out from an economic standpoint. So be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for that as well. Without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Dr. Paul Mitchell. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, career history? Yeah, sure. I grew up on a farm in northeastern Iowa, right in the corner, the very most northeastern county, Almakee, uh, corn, um, cow-calf operation, corn and hay. And political boundaries, I went to Iowa State University, um, even though Madison, Wisconsin, and then the University of Minnesota and St. Paul were both closer. Um, went to um, Iowa State University, um, eventually got my PhD. My first job was at Texas A&M University. I'm an economist by training with an agricultural um, um, minor in agricultural economics. And so my focus at, now, I've been at University of Wisconsin since 2004 in an extension um, research position um, focused on cropping systems. So I work a lot in crops here, uh, mostly corn and soybeans initially, but Wisconsin has a lot of specialty crop industry as well. So I worked a lot with, I moved into things like potatoes and um, cranberry are both big crops, as well as processing vegetables like canning vegetables, like sweet corn, green beans, and green peas and snap beans. That's really interesting. And I'm always fascinated by cranberries and I don't know that much about it, but we had a professor at U of I, Dr. Skirvin, and he always was talking about cranberries and how unique of a crop that is to grow and to produce. And, you know, we don't see that much around here. We're pretty much in the heart of corn and soybean country. Yeah, they're, they're pretty interesting. And um, I mean, the part that they're perennial and some of these marshes have been in production for well over a hundred years. It's just, um, they can rejuvenate the vines, but um, it's the same field. The vines are replanted. Some of them though are literally over hundred years old. It doesn't take a lot of acres. Um, Wisconsin sells about half or produces about half the world's cranberries. And it's not much over um, 20,000 acres, but you know, there's competition. It's like anything now. Canadians, the Chileans, uh, Europeans uh, are all moving into cranberries as well. So they are growing some in, in other continents, even it's not just a North American product. Yeah, the um, way uh, Quebec and, and British Columbia and North America, um, but some of the started production down in South America. And then that's, that's a little bit longer, but the, the, up in the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Estonia, I forget which one it is exactly up there. It might even be possible over on the other side in Scandinavia. I mean, you need the right climate. 
Um, that, that's I, a plant that's native to Wisconsin, though, or is that something that they find in other areas? Yeah, they, it's a North American um, native. I remember we went to Maine several years ago um, and, and remember walking around and we're up in a spot and I looked down and realized, hey, that's a cranberry. You can see the little <sighs> berries on there and it was a wild cranberry growing. You know, that's where ocean spray is from out, um, you know, places out there. Okay. Um, but it needs a special kind of marshy, boggy area. This pH has to be right and stuff like that. Um, but it's an interesting crop. It's perennial. It's, um, it takes a lot of management. There's a lot of effort that goes into it. But they've gotten very modern in their production practices and lots of, I mean, each little marsh is broken up in a little over an acre, a couple acres. Well, you can make it bigger. It depends on your system. But each one can almost be its own experimental unit as well. So you can really do a lot of sort of with not modern big data on cranberry production, um, depending on how much effort you want to put in. That's really interesting. And I, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm easily sidetracked. I could sit and talk about cranberries all day, probably, but we asked you to come on here today for your economics expertise. And one thing that's top of mind for sure for a lot of farmers is the ag economy with the high prices, the high commodity prices, and also the high input prices and, and the volatility in it. So I guess we could start off by setting the stage here. We're kind of uh, March 2022, and you know we got a lot of forces acting on the market. What does the profitability on the farm look like? We came off a pretty good year in 21. Going forward, what do you see? Well, yeah, like you said, 2021 was a great year between high crop prices. The livestock did well. Um, dairy is about the only one that was flat. Um, so all the farmers have gone into 2022 concerned about rising input costs, but in a solid financial situation. And 2022, even you look at all the, I'm focusing on corn and soybeans, the budget still look, there's still mar- positive margins there, um, unless you're a very high cost producer. I mean, prices or you know, input costs, I should say, are up like 25, 30%, maybe even more now, but the prices are still leaving farmers positive margins. And so I think you just play smart like every farmer generally knows control your costs and um, lock in some of these prices and the ways you do your marketing. Um, that's You can lock in some positive margins. But, oh boy, the risk is strange this year. How much money you have invested in your crop and maybe you're borrowing most likely some of it. It's kind of scary, the dollar values you're seeing. So I think I think it's um, crop insurance and risk management in general is a big deal this year. Um, you know, what crop insurance deadline is March 15th. So given the lag here, I'm guessing people will have to make their decisions up before this is out. But I think a lot of farmers are looking at increasing their coverage with crop insurance to maintain profitability, to lock in this, um, you know, part of their cost of production is covered. Um, They're even looking at higher coverage levels, but there's these other new products, SCO and ECO, supplemental coverage option and enhanced coverage option. You can ride a county policy with your revenue protection policy and get up to even with ECO all all the way up to 95% of your expected revenue. Um, it's not exactly your farm revenue, it's tied to the county um, yields, but it, it, like I said, people are really, if you're very concerned about that, um, that's the way to go, but it's expensive. Those, those policies, you have to pay for them. Um, you know, they're like the Cadillac of risk management. So that's my short answer is there's money to be made, do a good job marketing, control your costs. And if you're concerned about risk management beyond that, maybe look at your crop insurance again. Definitely interesting times. Paul, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the factors that are leading to some of these increases in input costs for farmers going into the 2022 season. Well, you know, COVID obviously is still on everyone's mind. Um, we just removed our mask mandate finally here in Dane County where I'm at. And um, the university will be as of Monday. 
but COVID has been a big issue and it's really affected our labor force in the sense that some people are dropping out, you know, the, a lot of people are retiring early. So what's driving a lot of this is supply chain disruptions um, of various sorts, um, certain essential inputs to make something or, you know, certain piece of equipment are, are just not available because the, the factory or the production facilities got problems or there's not a trucker to move it, or there's a, a, someone unloaded at the port or all those places are under some sort of a COVID shutdown, a quarantine for a certain period of time when something happens. And so they're, they're, they're ready to go, but COVID protocols are keeping them from um, doing things. All of that just has slowed everything down. And it's really been frustrating for a lot of operations and farmers. I mean, they, I, this is nothing new. We've been hearing about this, but COVID short um, disruptions and then overall just chasing labor is really a problem. Um, the unemployment rate is really low. Um, it's hard to get people to get to come into work, um, to, to work. There's a participation rate, we call it the labor force participation rate. If it's been declining over the, the years, you know, what percent of like 25 to 55 year old people are working, that's been slowly declining due to demographic factors. Um, and that it kind of accelerated with COVID. And so there's just a real tight market. And I think if you talk to anybody that works in business, it's, it's not just an agricultural problem, it's across the economy. And so that's been driving a lot of this inflation. Um, but yeah, definitely supply chain disruptions with labor shortages being a big one. So is there a long-term solution or a long-term, you know, light at the end of the tunnel as far as those labor shortages? Is that something we're going to be dealing with going forward? I think it's a long-term trend. I, I think the inflation cycle we went through um, back when I was a kid in the seventies, you know, everyone was freaking out about inflation. Um, we're at about that level in some of these um, periods now. The last time we saw it this high, the 70s and 80s, um, it's all about energy. It's energy prices. And we've adapted to higher energy prices. It took a while to work that through the economy. And that's essentially what we're going to have to do with this labor um, supply problem. We're going to have to work the higher labor costs through the economy, the shortage of labor. So you can see a lot of organizations, farms, and those working with farmers on the input supply or after the farm gate are just going to be investing in more and more labor saving things, things that use less time. I just think of the movement towards virtual. We're recording this podcast virtually. I'm in Wisconsin. You're in Illinois. Ten years ago, maybe it took, we would have used a telephone, but you know, not that long ago, we would have been in person. All that time that would take of both of us to meet somewhere in person. Now we can get more of these done, and we're looking for ways like that to save labor, to save time. And so I think it'll take us a while as a, an economy to adapt to the high value of labor. We're going to find ways to get around it with technology and um, other inputs. That's what I was going to ask about from a farm perspective. I mean, does this increase the rate of adoption of automation? I mean, even automated tractors and things like that, that have not really been adopted yet. I've been telling farmers here is um, when you, you know, because a lot of these balance sheets are in pretty good shape after the high prices and the large government payments from CFAP. Um, especially um, the coronavirus food assistance program that poured a lot of money in ag. And I say, be careful what you invest in. <laughs> I would strongly encourage you, if you're sure you want to invest in something, make sure if it's going to be labor increasing, you need more labor to run it. Make sure you really are confident you've got that labor supply because um, labor is not going to get easier to find. Um, and so it's and so much of ag is seasonal in the seasonal labor forces aren't always the the most reliable labor force is a reason they have part-time jobs or short-term jobs often. And that's, so it definitely will, anything that can save labor in a farm or the people selling to farmers or buying from farmers, 
is probably going to be a good investment um, over the next while. Um, it's just, we have to work through, just like we had to work through higher energy and finding ways to be more energy efficient because gas got expensive, all energy did. Labor's in the same thing. We're going to have to spend, um, so um, spend time working through this. And it means finding ways to use less labor, less time. And so I think that'll be a, a big impact on farmers for sure. Farming corn and soy doesn't use a lot of labor per bushel of corn or per bushel of soybeans relative to other things, but it will um, show up as higher costs because the people making the, the different inputs or buying you downstream are going to need to adjust for higher labor costs. But farmers too, it, it will. Finding ways to save labor. I'm finding, I'm thinking like just transportation, moving your brain around is going to be more difficult to find a driver, um, things like that. There are ways to, you know, here we have a lot of manure, um, a lot of ways to move manure um, without having to haul it so far, maybe a pipelines and stuff like that. So you don't have to have a driver driving it. Ways to do irrig run your irrigation system remotely so you don't have to go drive around all the different places. That's the kind of stuff we'll see. Well, Paul, this might open up a whole can of worms here, but you mentioned the CFAT payments. How does governmental policy in different ways affect profitability on the farm? So you, you also talked about crop insurance early on. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a year that, well, we just came off of um, CFAP, the, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, which, like I said, poured millions or billions into ag. But I mean, people were freaking out. You saw the stuff that's empty store shelves, people in Wisconsin, you know, dumping milk, the pile of potatoes in Idaho hogs being euthanized instead of turned into meat. People were worried, you know, the food system was going to fall apart. So Congress poured money into making sure the food system, that the store shelves weren't um, empty. And um, there was just unprecedented billions of dollars poured into agriculture. You can plot those data of, you know, spending on government subsidies to for agricultural for agriculture. And those are just off the chart, what we've seen historically. But that's gone. Those are gone. The market facilitation program, MFP is gone. So it's back to the farm bill programs, ARC and PLC and crop insurance. And to be frank, ARC and PLC, the agriculture risk coverage and price loss coverage, the farm bill price support or commodity support programs aren't going to pay this year unless the whole world falls apart and prices collapse. Um, it's just very unlikely to see those pay. So they're essentially irrelevant. I mean, an 840 floor and price of beans isn't really going to help uh, farmers much this year, given the current markets. So that's the big push this year for what government, where the government policy comes in is crop insurance. That's a very important thing this year. Um, all this volatility, the market uncertainty is tremendous um, with the Russian invasion and how much that's especially corn and wheat markets. But crop insurance, be, it's so important. I think farmers know that. They want to lock in these margins with these high costs. And then you've got the price uncertainty on the other end. But there's also the, the other sorts of policies. I mean, a lot of parts of the country, are, are the, the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the payments like for CRP and EQIP, there are people, you know, that's an important part of their um, less productive lands tend to use the CRP. Um, EQIP is good to help um, farmers be green, if you want to call it that, whatever, you know, adopt some practices. Those are important as well. And I, I things like, though, how do we get a labor supply, investment in research and development at the, you know, in private and public um, research, facilitating that. Um, this policy, I mean, what they do with Ukraine, um, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine is going to affect energy prices and commodity prices. So those kinds of policies do matter. It's a little more indirect. And to be frank, I don't know what the U.S. government should do, what's going on in Russia, um, with Russia invading Ukraine. But those kind of things do matter as well. But 
traditionally farm programs, ArcPLC, yes, you go in and do your election, don't expect any payments. Crop insurance is where it's at this year for the farm bill. You mentioned CRP. I just read a story over the weekend. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody proposed converting some CRP acres to production agriculture in 2022. Have you heard anything about, about this effort? No, I haven't. I'm, it, it's hard to keep up with all the news in ag, but it wouldn't surprise me with these prices like they are um, that, you know, maybe, I mean, if things really fall off, the wheels really fall off the bus in um, Ukraine and the corn prices get really high because China's buying all the corn that they would normally buy from Ukraine. They can't plant this year because the, there's a war going on. Um, you know, they're a major exporter that could create some substantially high crop, in, uh, crop prices for corn and wheat. And the one way to eliminate that would be to allow extra land in production. The one would be CRP. I mean, it's just like when they have a drought, they allow um, grazing or making hay off of it. Um, but I, I don't think we're there yet. I would really hope that things settle down enough in Ukraine that uh, we can, the farmers can plant corn and wheat and their other crops. When we talk about that for the listeners and for my, my benefit, what proportion of the world's corn or, you know, other crops, wheat maybe is produced in Ukraine. That's a fairly significant producer of agricultural commodities, right? Yeah. I don't know the numbers exactly, but I remember it being fourth or fifth. If you look at the, what's the Mazda world agricultural at world agricultural supply and demand estimates, USDA puts out, you can get the exact numbers, but Ukraine is, a, is one of the top exporters of wheat, uh, number four or five Russia as well. A lot of that Ukraine wheat goes out to the Black Sea where all the Russians, that's where all the fighting is. They're trying to grab those ports. Um, a lot of the, the Russian grains go out through that same port. A lot of that Ukrainian grain also, that the stuff that goes out of the ports goes to um, the Middle East. Um, that's the wheat. for, And that's sort of like, the, that's a big concern with the high wheat costs. That's kind of like another Arab spring where we had all the unrest in the Arab nations due to high food prices that led to a lot of um, uh you know, political uncertainty there, um, that's quieted down. Well, some people are wondering if these high wheat prices and the disruption of wheat coming from its traditional source in Ukraine will add some more political uncertainty and chaos, if you will, in the Middle East. And a lot of that corn grain, maybe some of the wheat, hit ships by um, rail. Um, Those rail lines have really improved in the last um, five years to all the way to China. And China will expect to, if they can't get it from Ukraine, it's going to be out in the market again, buying it most likely from us because the South American crop is short. Um, and so we're the world's largest corn producer and largest exporter. So we've got, that's where the world's going to come to get corn. Well, it's going to show up as higher prices for farmers. Like I said, this is a year for farmers not to give up the upside potential on prices. I, I just think prices could go way higher than we expect, but definitely put a floor in. Um, my goodness, you know, things fall, could fall apart strangely. And so get a floor in your prices, but oh, the upside could be big. Um, so don't give it up. Paul, let's shift gears a little bit here uh, mm-hmm. and talk about some other aspects of farming. So in the last 20 years, say, farmers have really widely adapted biotech crops. And that's had some effect on productivity. That's had some effects on profitability and, and things like that. Overall, what, what has the impact been of the, the adoption of biotech products on farming operations? Well, it's kept the U.S. a top corn producer and soybean producer. Um, you know, Brazil's embraced it as well. Um, and, you know, that's why Brazil, part of the reason they're now the world's largest soybean producer, um, they bypassed the U.S. 
Um, and biotech's been a big part of that, our productivity gains. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of our competitive advantage as a grain producer. Um, and we do have a, we're a major, like we're the largest, world's largest corn producer, the second largest soybean, soybean producer now. We, we work in a lot of other markets as well. It's, it's something we lead in. And so it has improved, increased productivity. There's something called Cochrane's Treadmill. It's a, Cochrane was an um, ag econ professor at University of Minnesota. And what a lot of these new technologies do is increase productivity and it creates this extra supply that actually has a price decreasing, you know, tends to push the price down. You get more supply, corn prices go down a little bit. So you get, say, new technology, 5% more corn out there, price comes down. Um, and so the winners are the early adopters on this Cochrane's treadmill. And so that's why you're continually racing on the treadmill, um, adopting the new technologies as fast as possible to make the profits before it becomes a standard way of doing things and the price is pushed down a little bit. And you can go through the numbers and calculate these things. But the reality is, is um, it's made us a world leader in these crop and you know, grain production. Um, it, but it does put pressure on farmers to continually adopt the, the most productive technologies and to maintain their um, competitive advantages. How do I use these technologies to get as much productivity out of this at a reasonable cost as I can? So it's, it's like that treadmill. You, you want to stay in shape, you got to run on that treadmill. Um, and that's the same thing for farmers. You want to maintain income and profits to pay off the um, mortgage and um, own the land when you're done. You're going to have to run on the treadmill to work hard to and. The technology adoption is part of that. You need to um, keep up with the latest technologies to, to maintain um, competitiveness with the, the rest of the industry. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. And I think, I think it's easy for, I mean, it's easy to understand how that works. The simple economics of it, you increase the, the amount of the product that there is, and that has an effect on prices, obviously downward. And then, you know, it, it becomes harder to maintain that, you know, you have to do the next thing to get that little bit more incrementally more output to, to maintain your viability. And so um, it also, I assume that also opens up some of the market for some of the specialty crops or some of the organics and things like that, that also creates room for some farmers that want to dabble in some of those areas. Oh, it, it has a lot of effects beyond even that. Yeah. I mean, there's simple things like it, if, if the corn sector becomes larger through all this extra productivity, that's more jobs. There's more money flowing through the communities and stuff like that as well. There's an overall um, positive effect that way, the, the um, multiplier effects that agriculture generates. Um, and then, yeah, exactly. Um, people then say, you know, I'm tired of running on the treadmill and trying to be like everybody else. That's, it opens up these opportunities, especially if you want to take part of your operation and convert it over to especially, you know, like food grade soybeans are a big deal or organic grains. It, it bothers me that we're the world's largest corn and soybean, well, second now, soybean producer. And we've got, Wisconsin has a major organic industry for, you know, dairy, milk um, production. Yet they ha we have to import gr organic grains. Um, I just find that bizarre that we're the world's largest corn producer, mm -hmm. yet we can't grow enough of our own organic grain that we have to import it. Um, and it's be be so I think we'll get there. Um, we can learn how to do that just as well as we learn how to grow corn and soybeans conventionally. But there's all those food grade products and there's just the demand for all these food um, protein based, you know, high protein, plant based proteins. That's like all the rage and soybeans are an obvious one. But um, there's so many other crops like that out there as well. Um, around in Wisconsin, you got something called Chippewa Valley Bean. Um, they do a lot of um, various dried beans and stuff. A lot of their productions out in the Great Plains, over in the Red River Valley and stuff is where they contract. But they've been doing quite well. Um, 
the trade war kind of affected them some because a lot of their output stuff was shipped overseas. And so they've been struggling some with um, tariffs, but um, like I said, the, the, the craze for plant-based proteins is, is definitely helping us find these other legume alternatives to soybean or alternatives to conventional soybeans grown for um, livestock feed, you know, food grade soybeans. Do you see that trend for the plant-based proteins continuing to increase at the same rate? I think it's starting to slow is what they're saying. And it's going to come down to marketing and the generational shifts and what these younger people want and believe. That's just like, you know, we went through that. I don't know what generation you're all in exactly, but the world changes, you know, we all baby boomers are mostly, I'm not, I'm not a baby boomer. I'm just before the baby boomers, I'm the oldest of the next generation roughly. And, and so I see that they're, they're different um, and I'm different than them. And I think it's these younger people, they're willing to try these foods that I, I and, and embrace them, not just taste, taste them once and okay, I don't like it. They embrace some of these things. I see it with my kids. And um, so I, I, I do think these alternative foods, food's important. They don't always know about agriculture, um, but there's this like foodie culture broadly defined where they're after some new mixture of like, I don't know, curry, um, curried rice with um, something from South America mixed in and something from North America, you know, cranberries with the curried rice or something like that, where they're mixing all these mash cultures together. And I think that's, um, that's just their, that's the way they approach life. They're different than us. Um, And uh, so I think that's going to continue in some way, shape or form. And the food is, it's always evolving, changing. Uh, But at the same time, there's a ton of people that are very price cautious, cost conscious, and we got to feed everybody. And so it's not like the standard hamburger and potatoes are going to go away either. It's just, there's this group of people that are trying all these other mishmash and sort of pan global food. So part of the reason, I, I believe, for the adoption of the plant-based proteins is from sustainability concerns or you know environmental concerns. From a long-term perspective of a farmer, we're talking about viability of their operation, you know, long-term ROI. Is there a re- you know should farmers be interested in adopting more sustainable practices? And I use sustainable very loosely because you know we. That, that's an overused word, but I, I think, you know, you understand what we're meaning by it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Wisconsin has got a lot of these producer-led watershed groups. Um, they get a little small seed funding from the Department of Ag here, um, and they, the farmers organize themselves and work on improving their um, water quality. And I was just speaking to one of these associations last week, um, and it, as part of their annual meeting, they have a little, you know, a conference, if you will, for like the 30, 40 people in their their group. And we, they, they were asking the same kind of thing. part of the topic was that. Um, and that's the reason I think it's worth There's two reasons, really. Um, first off, you're just taking care of your land, building your soil um, up, you know, or your system. Um, you're building resiliency of your soil so you can weather whatever happens. I mean, you've, we've been getting wild weather. I think of that wet spring of 2019, how just unbelievably wet it was. Mm-hmm. 2020 was actually quite dry, in southern Wisconsin especially. Um, I mean, Madison, Dane County is about um, 13 inches behind during the 2021 calendar year. Yet at the same time, we had record crops. Um, we had we set new state average yield um, records for corn and silage and soybeans. Um, so we got a lot of um, yield this year, even though we're always just on the edge of the, are we in a drought or not. Um, that was based on the soil. We were able to extract a lot of moisture out of the soil profile. And that's what this is resiliency is about or soil sustainability or whatever it will be called in 10 years. It'll come up with a new name. Best management practices is what we called it when I was a kid. 
I think that's what you're up to is you're trying to make your system more resilient, more stable in the face of all these challenges that are being thrown at you. I, they expect the rainfalls actually been going up in Wisconsin, um, here where I'm at, and the annual amount, but it comes in fewer um, but heavier rains. And so you've got longer dry periods between it. And then when it rains, it rains a lot is what they can show that in the data. The last five, 10 years, you can mm-hmm. really see it. And so that's all about your soil is what makes your system and having the right seed that can take advantage of it, that can weather and has a good root growth structure to get down there to the moisture, having your soil with a lot of water in it to weather that dry period. Yet when it does rain and it can absorb it, it doesn't wash away and you don't end up with um, a bunch of ditches and erosion. So there's a lot of that that to me makes sense. And then back to how I started on this with these producer-led watershed groups. The other thing that it, I think is good about it is it, it helps you um, get ahead of the regulation. Because, I mean, it's pretty clear to me, and I think a lot of people would agree, we're going to have water quality regulation here in Wisconsin. is going to be tr- increased from what it is currently. There's just a water quality problem, and there's nothing new about that. People know it. Um, it helps them get ahead of the regulation and can even help form the regulation. These, these producer-led watershed groups are collecting all kinds of information of what different practices, how they affect water quality. And you can broaden that out to not just, you know, beyond water quality, um, but that's what the, this group's focus was. And I think that's another reason to do it is if you form associations, work through the systems with the, the various grower organizations, you can use information from your association members to help show what can be done and how effective it is and what's a more reasonable way to achieve some of these goals. Otherwise, you're just going to, they're going to force feed you some regulation that might not be very palatable. And so it's a good way to get ahead of the regulation and maybe even help form the regulation. Those two things I think are probably important drivers to a lot of farmers. I mean, the, you know, they want to pass on the operation to their children in many cases and long-term soil health is obviously something that's critical for that. And then just the opportunity to kind of control their own fate, so to speak, if, if, if we can do a better job at managing nutrient loss, for instance, yeah. uh, maybe the regulations that come out won't be quite so stringent. So I, I think there's, I think those are great points. Or unrealistic. Sometimes, I mean, I've had conversations, I don't know, you guys do as much as I do with people that they have strong beliefs about what ag should be doing, but they're not founded in sort of like a understanding what agriculture is up to. Um, and that's, I think, the part of what these can let us do if you communicate with people. I don't know if you're not, how's it go? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Um, you want to be <laughs> at the table with information to contribute to the debate and discussion. I'm going to steal that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the menu. Well, Paul, getting back to practical farmer advice here real quick. Um, you know, me and Jason talk with farmers all day and there's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt right now. Uh, when, when we talk to a lot of these farmers, you know, farmlands, 20 grand an acre, central Illinois, potential hyperinflation. We hear about deflation potential, and then all these black swan events that keep popping up. Um, You mentioned a few practical things already, like lock in a floor when it comes to pricing, uh, but then also don't miss out on potential topside uh, prices. Do you have any other practical advice for farmers who want to maintain or maybe even increase profitability in these current circumstances? Well, it's, it's the usual is all about cost control. Prices get high and you start getting lots of income in your pocket. Farmers can sometimes get a little loopy and spend too much on things. Um, it, there's always that 
that natural drive to do that and overspend on things. It's, it's keeping your head about yourself. Um, and and same, uh, machinery is a common one to do that with. You know, be, be, you got to be business savvy in these things and not overspend on things you don't really need. And like I said, it's back to that. Think about labor. It's it, whatever you're doing when you're spending money on. Think about the labor needs you're going to have if you invest in something new. And can you find that labor? Um, that's each farmer is different, but in, in terms of what their late access to labor is, but. If you're going to invest in something that takes a lot more labor, be very careful about it. Uh, and then it, it, this year, it's always about marketing. It's so important this year. And there's so much information that shows that farmers don't do a good job of marketing using the, the tools that are out there. Um, and those tools are frankly kind of scary and spooky. And I always say, it's just like you hire an agronomist, hire a marketing person to help you out. Um, you don't have to know about marketing yourself. You, you got to know to hire someone who knows how to do marketing to help you make an extra you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 cents a bushel will pay for themselves if they're good. If not, find another one. Um, you can find other buyers or uh, marketing to help you market stuff. I don't think you should be embarrassed to have ask for help. Just like you wouldn't be embarrassed as a, to ask a veterinarian for how to help your cows be healthier, um, how to ask a crop consultant to do a better job um, controlling weeds. Why not ask a marketer to help you do a better job marketing? That's Some people feel like they're, they're used car salesmen. They're always this weird vibe about them. But um, I, the good ones are good. and They can help you make more money. That's a really interesting point, a really good point, I think. I mean, you know, the, the marketing is probably, you know, I don't have the numbers, but I would imagine marketing is is a huge factor in profitability. So obviously a 20 cent decision on average over the course of the year and, and the amount of bushels that are produced can be pretty significant. Oh, definitely. And if for whatever reason, I, I think the marketing... Farmers are just scared of it and they understand corn and soybeans, how to grow crops and drive machinery and unload and load things. They get a little nervous. And I think people just feel like they're getting taken advantage of by somebody who knows more than they do. Um, and so ask around. If you find someone who's got a good reputation, an organization you can trust, I, I, they're all going to be selling the same thing in the end. And so find somebody that you feel comfortable with and ask your friends and neighbors who they work with. I, I think marketing has got so it's a good source of value um, to, you know, a place to make money that it's not, you shouldn't be embarrassed to ask for help on it. Um, you know, 50 years ago, you didn't have to ask for help on, on a lot of things, the nutrient management, weed management, um, you know, how to feed your cows, but farmers use all that stuff. Now I think marketing is one area where farmers can learn to use uh, marketing services to help them do a better job and get extra money for the grains. Awesome. Well, Paul, as a follow-up, I know you're not in the weather industry, but if you consult your crystal ball and you, you know, consider economic trends, do you expect the current input prices, um, you know, land costs, things like that, the current inflationary environment we find ourselves in, do you think that's the new normal? Well, I, there's a, I looked at the, what they call the producer price index, which is sort of like the cost think of it as an index of the cost of production for the production side of the whole U.S. economy. Um, you can look at the ag, there's an ag version of it as well that looks just as farming. And there's been a lot of input costs, um, product, cost of production increase for the U.S. economy for the producers of the economy that has not yet been pushed to the consumer end. I think there is like over 20% increase um, in cost of this index, of producer price index, and consumer prices are only up like 7-8%. Um, and so there is some more inflationary pressure that has not been passed down the full supply chain. Um, if my costs go up 20%, I'm going to push some of that down the supply chain to my, um, you know, the 
people I'm selling to, and they're going to pick up some of that cost for me. And I don't, I think there's a lot more of that to happen yet. So I think the ag, we're, we're still, I don't think we've settled down. Um, fertilizer prices, we're looking to kind of stabilize there, especially in the last few weeks of February. But now this whole new um, Russian invasion of Ukraine has thrown that all into, um, I'll back up again, I'm assuming it'll happen with the, the major production of fertilizer in that part of the world, uh, Belarus, um, you know, Russia, and then just the shipping it out of those ports. And my saying Estonia, Latvia, those places are also involved in the fertilizer trade um, as a port, shipping port. And so it's just, that's going to add more cost. Um, so I, I think, yes, this is a long run trend for a little while yet, just like it took us a while to get over the energy crunch and adapt to that. It's going to take us a little while yet to get over this labor crunch and then add in the political uncertainty of war in Europe. We'll see. Well, Paul, it's, uh, it's easy to be a little bit, uh, discouraged or pessimistic with all that's going on in the world right now. But long-term, you know, you have a unique economic perspective and and kind of understanding long-term what things are kind of helpful to farmers and what things kind of don't pan out in the long-term. Looking into the future, what what excites you the most about the future of farming? Is it something in technology? Is it different practices that farmers adopt? What, What kind of thing do you see that, you know, gets you excited? The one thing I'm interested in is the precision ag. I think we're on the cusp of on-farm experimentation with, with precision ag, where you can go out remote sense and during your soil testing, those quick ways to do it with all that, you know, you've got all that information about the things you don't control, but you observe, you know, like your soil types, um, you can measure your soil nitrogen, things like that. Um, control all the inputs, um, the seeding, the seeding rates, the seeding, you can change hybrids on the fly. Um, you can change variable application of different, um, you know, the fertilizers, even getting to pesticides. Um, and then you got the yield monitor at the end. Those are, that's one big experiment. I mean, that's an input, you got observational stuff, you got input management, then you got yield and you can run that cycle. I think the AI will get us to the point where farmers will be able to run their own on-farm experiments. It'll all happen in the background. The AI algorithms will take care of it. And it helps them optimize their inputs um, because like a new, a new corn hybrid, by the time the universities had time to do the research on it, on um, to figure out if it needs some different management system, it's already off the, out of the bag and there's a new one coming out. And only you know, the, the hybrids flip over so fast um, that you can't wait for the universities to research on them to tell you if these new technologies, it takes a while. I think the farmers can doing more and more of that themselves behind the scenes, the analysis of it all will happen with these algorithms in their, um, in their whole data system. We got a lot of work to do to get there yet. This is not like ready to roll out tomorrow. Um, but maybe in 20 years, I could see on farm experimentation really rolling is a behind the scenes, algorithmically happening data analysis and manipulation of their field input management. I think that's going to have a lot of gains for productivity and um, reduction in environmental impacts on, you know, losses of nutrients or pesticides to the environment. I think those are really good points and in Prestonize jobs, part of our responsibility is to help come up with the recommendations for the products that we, you know, the new hybrids and things like you mentioned. And it's, it's very difficult, exactly. As you said, you know, we have a product that's only on the market for a number of years and it's, it's, it's hard to get the amount of data to come up with really good tailored recommendations for those products. And I think long-term, probably we need to move towards 
looking at the characteristics of those hybrids, certain characteristics, whether it's, it's phenotypic things that we can see in the field or whether it's actually based on the genetics and, and coming up with recommendations kind of by group and, and understanding, you know, there's this certain thing about this hybrid. We need to come up with a really good recommendation ahead of time and be a little bit more proactive. And so I think that's something I, I think I see in the future too. And I'm pretty excited about that myself. Yeah. You guys can have to do your own increase your research productivity in that way, somehow using all this information. Because yeah, there are farmers are going to be demanding these things as fast as possible. And it's your business. You want to do it right. And so I want to tell them how to use it, but you can't, you can't wait for the research from all your different research stations all around the Midwest to figure out what to do. By the time you figure it out, it'll be off the market. Right. Yep. It's a struggle. Well, Paul, we really appreciate you joining us here today, taking time out of your schedule to join us for our podcast. If you're up for it, I think we'd definitely like to have you back on maybe after the growing season of 2022, just to see how things played out. But yeah, we appreciate your time here today. Well, sure. This has been fairly straightforward. I, I work on a lot of these questions and talk to different groups. So it's nice to kind of have them all captured and written down or recorded. Is there a place our listeners can go to learn more about your research? Just Google Paul Mitchell at Ag and Applied Economics at University of Wisconsin, Madison got my course page for my undergraduate farm management class. Then I have my extension pages, part of that same page. Um, A lot of my presentations are there. I'm also director of the Rank Agribusiness Institute. We put on a forum every year in in late January. A lot of this is sort of about what's going on in agriculture from an economic perspective. It's very Wisconsin focused with the situation outlook. And then we do something topical for the afternoon, Um, you know, different topics. We did hemp a couple of years ago. Did COVID, of course, this last year's water quality. But the morning is all situation out with farm economics, the and all the major crop and livestock system that we have here in the state. Sounds great. And we'll add some links in the show notes so that people yeah. can find your stuff a little bit easier. I'll hopefully. send you some links. I got your email. Sounds great. Thanks again. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.